So what did the uh, what did the dentist say to the carbon copy? That's some serious decay. Yeah? No? No laughs? Alright. Just just roll the intro. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists I'll never be able to play like. And recording tips to get your music out to the masses. This week, we're going to be talking about some new product releases, including one in a form factor you may have never seen before. We're going to be talking about everyone's favorite time-based effect, delay. We're going to be going over the tone of Josh Rand from Stone Sour. And then we're going to be talking about pedals that you can use for your guitar as well as your bass. First up, have you ever been sitting at home, looking at your pedal board, poking around your fuzzes, and thinking, hmm, you know what my big muff is missing? A USB port. I mean, come on. Everybody's going the USB route now. Strymon, even TC Electronic, why not Electroharmonics? Well, good news, your hypothetical desires just came true. Electroharmonics have released the Big Muff Pie hardware plugin. I don't even know if I want to call this a pedal, but you know, to keep my tiny peanut brain from exploding, we'll stick with that. This pedal is, at its core, a ram's head muff. You know, the one that we've all got lying around somewhere, whether it be on your board, propping your door open, or being used as like a jack stand for your car. But now, it can function as an outboard effect for your recordings. According to the videos and the demos, you can use it as a plugin where you connect it via USB to your computer and it's got its own software, but it also functions as a stand-alone two-in, two-out interface. It's got your standard Big Muff controls for volume, tone, and sustain, but it's also got a tone bypass switch, a la op-amp muff, and a wicker switch, like the one found on the tone wicker muff. The interface portion of this pedal has the ability to create presets, monitor via headphones, and set the onboard gain with stereo clipping LEDs to monitor it. I think this is definitely unique. You don't see many classic pedals that are reborn into a sort of plug-in or studio-style effect like this. I mean, if you think about this, this is essentially a a rack mount or a 500 series big muff. I know it's not rack or 500 series physical format, but that's essentially what they're doing here. So somebody that, you know, just wants to throw their big muff on everything like guitar, bass, drums, whatever, you can do that now. I, you know, they usually either start that way in terms of pedals that have this type of capability or they never make it there at all. You don't see a, a fuzz face plug-in. The demos still sound like a ram's head reissue, so you're getting a good big muff circuit in there, and the pedal seems to have quite a bit of headroom and easy integration with DAWs, but I personally don't know how useful it'll be. I know when I first got into recording, the first interface I bought was one of the Euphoria UM2s from Behringer. It was a nice little 2-in, two 2-out two interface that worked great for a budget. It was only 40 bucks or so at the time, if I can remember correctly. On the other hand, my first pedals were relatively budget-friendly, too. Stuff like a Boss SD-1 and a Soul Food, which were really inexpensive options. The main issue that I see with this product isn't in its design. It's something that's really cool. They've definitely set out to take a hardware plug-in up a big muff. 
And I think they've accomplished exactly what they've set out to do, and it does it very well. I just wonder how much of the market space it's actually going to capture. I don't think first-time interface buyers will jump at this. It's much more expensive than other entry-level interfaces, and I don't think first-time fuzz pedal buyers will go for it either, as it's much more expensive than the Big Muff reissues. I think this is going to be more of a fan service type of deal. This is probably geared towards somebody that really likes Big Muffs and finds themselves throwing it on multiple tracks, like we talked about before, you know, if you're throwing your Big Muff on guitar or bass or drums or even vocals, I... I don't know how that would work, but if you do it and it sounds good, hey, more power to you. I'm I'm happy for you. I'm glad it works. But uh, this also might be for collectors who want every Big Muff variant ever. And the more I talk about this, especially talking about throwing a Big Muff on vocals, that actually sounds like it would work really well. Uh, the more I'm starting to convince myself that maybe I want it. I don't know. What do you guys think? Is this something that you guys are hopping all over? Have you ordered 10 already? I'm curious to see how well this does and if they start pushing this format to other effects. I know that I'd personally love to see a Hazurai Memory Man in this format, and I'd be all over that if uh, Electroharmonics released that. But, you know, remains to be seen. So we're breaking the mold here, and we're talking about bass news. But don't worry, if you're upset about that, save your rage for the end of this episode when we get even further into Baseland. It's okay. My inbox is open to comments, questions, concerns, and insults all the same. You know, I wear glasses, so if you open your email or your message with, hey, four eyes, that'll really sting. There's some free ammo for you. Dark Glass Electronics is probably one of my favorite bass effect companies. They've collaborated with manufacturers like Ernie Ball to get their circuits and stock bases, and they make some truly innovative stuff. Not a couple months after I picked up their Alpha Omega preamp pedal, do they go and release some brand new craziness that makes me wish I waited. Microtubes Infinity. The Infinity is an absolute beast of a bass pedal, and it seems like it's aiming to be a one-stop shop for people who need a good DI box or preamp for their bass. It's got three separate bass distortions, the B3K, the Vintage, and the X models, as well as a multi-band compressor. If you're not familiar with this term, it means that you can individually control compression in separate frequency bands instead of just affecting your signal as a whole. In addition to this, you've got your standard tone, blend, and level controls, as well as a USB connection for your computer to have it operate as an interface and an IR loader. The demos show a wide variety of tones that all sound extremely rich and work well with a variety of different bases and pickup configurations. If y'all are looking for a new bass preamp, this may be the route to go. You're definitely paying for the functionality at about 600 bucks, but if this is going to be your whole bass rig in a box, I think that's quite a bit cheaper than buying your pedals, amp, and cab all separately, and I'm excited to see more of it. I've seen some guitar pedals in some weird formats before. You know, there's the oh-so-common Altoids tin pedals, there's people mounting pedals inside of guitars, and then there's the Spamp. Yeah, you heard me right. Uh... Go on Etsy, type in Spamp, and you'll see it. It's a pocket amplifier built into a Spam can. And personally, I love Spam. I know a lot of people think it's gross, but I kind of want it just because I love Spam. <laughs> but I never figured that I would see a pedal that you could actually play on a functioning record player. An Indianapolis band called Brother O' oh Brother is releasing their new album called Skinwalker in two limited edition vinyls one with an overdrive pedal in its center, and one with a delay. 
These vinyls are admittedly thicker and heavier than your standard vinyls, and that's of course on account of all the circuitry for the pedals being needed to fit inside of them, but they actually play on a record player. Of course, because they're thicker, your tone arm's going to need to have the vertical range to be able to sit on top of it, but still, I mean, it works, and of course, they actually work as pedals. People complain about fitting fuzz faces and wahs on boards, but I can't imagine how pressed for space somebody would be if they got attached to the sounds of one of these, trying to fit a full-sized vinyl on your pedal board. I don't know, and I wonder if stomping on it would, would somehow, did they make the actual pressing of the vinyl more durable, or as you use the pedal, are you going to limit the functionality, scratch the record, break the pressing off, bend it, whatever. I, I don't know how well they've thought it out, but it's still cool to see. The album is on sale as of September 17th, and there's only 35 units available. They sell as a pair for 400 bucks, and they're only shipping to the USA. They seem to still be available, so if you want a one-of-a-kind pedal slash vinyl, you better snap them up fast. This week, we're going to work with the effect that gets you closest to real-world time travel. Delay. 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 Now, before delay came about as an effect, delay was actually originally used by radio stations to make the quality of their broadcasts seem a little bit more beefy. This was before the invention of magnetic tape recordings or anything like that. So the signal would be sent along telephone lines literally across the country, then returned to the transmitting station to get a short amount of delay, and the delay time, and its limited time at least, was due to the sheer speed at which electricity travels. You send the signal across the country and it comes back in a matter of milliseconds. Now I don't know about you, but my internet and my phone company is about as reliable as Subway's selection for marketing personas, so I don't think that's really a viable option for me. <laughs> With the advent of magnetic recording in the 1940s, audio engineers began to experiment a little, as we all should. These little experiments were all conducted in a similar way. A short loop of tape was attached to a recorder. A signal was provided to the input of the recorder, which then recorded said signal onto the tape. As we said though, the tape was in a short loop, so eventually the recorded signal would pass over a tape head, which would then play the recorded signal back. This only provided for one repeat at whatever speed the tape was running, but eventually inventors were able to add multiple playback heads for additional repeats, as well as a control to physically move the playback heads in order to provide for different delay speeds. One of the neat things about analog delays especially tape delay, is that the replication isn't perfect each time. Due to the inaccuracy of magnetic recording, each successive repeat would be a little more warbly and degraded. There were two large issues with tape delays, however. The first was that they were extremely large. Vintage units were typically large enough to take up the majority of a school desk, about the size of a modern-day record player. The second issue was that they required quite a bit of maintenance, as the tape would wear out or the tape track would simply stop working so constant replacement parts had to be on hand. One of the most popular units during this time was the Maestro EP1 Echoplex that was invented by Ray Butts. You've probably seen quite a few different pedals that were aiming to replicate the sound of the Echoplex. See that? We got through that. We took the high road. We didn't say anything about Ray Butts' name. Not one word, and this doesn't count. 
Now I'm not nearly rich enough to own my own tape delay, so here we're using a DSP tape delay simulator off of T-Rex 5, which is IK Multimedia's plug-in suite. We're going to take a look at what this effect would sound like on a guitar track. You can definitely hear where the allure of the warm, decaying repeats comes from with tape delays, especially at the end of that track, how it got a little bit more warm, a little less treble heavy each time it slapped back after the recording. A sort of weird format of delay that we see in between tape delay and our current solid state offerings are drum or oil can delays. These delays weren't extremely popular, but they were used on a few recordings in the 50s. They worked by filling a small metal can, about the size of a modern-day tuna can, with oil, so that it stored a charge. A pickup was placed inside the can, then the drum was spun around with a pickup receiving the stored charge from the drum, thus creating the repeats. I honestly don't have any DSP or analog units to demo this, but it sounds like it's 100% its own class of effect if you check out demos online. If you want to try it out for yourself, the Catalan Bread Adeneco seems to be a modern, simulated alternative, and there's a great demo of it by Pro Guitar Shop on YouTube demonstrating these tones. As with everything in the guitar world, new technology paves the way, and it ends up being quickly adopted to make the nonsense noise that we all know and love. In 1969, the Bucket Brigade device, or BBD, was invented. It was a small integrated circuit, or IC, a lot of acronyms I know, bear with me, sometimes known as a chip. BBDs were able to route your signal through multiple stages of transistors and capacitors in one small component. The chip acted as somewhat of a mixer, where the signal would be split. One half goes through the BBD stages, and the other goes straight to the output. The signal going through the stages would be slightly delayed due to the extra time it took to complete its path. BBD delays have a key issue that actually makes them sound unique, however. This is that BBD delays require quite a bit of high-cut filtering in order to mask the clock noise. This makes each successive repeat a little bit more warm and a little bit more degraded than the last. This is sort of how tape echoes decay just a bit with every single repeat like we heard before. When we're talking about these analog BBD delays, popular units include the Electroharmonics Memory Man and the MXR Carbon Copy. The Carbon Copy has a unique feature on it where there's two internal trim pots and an external push-button switch that allow you to modulate the repeats without affecting the dry signal. Let's take a listen to it now. Eventually, the issues with noise degradation and the limitations of bucket brigade device delays short delay times were again improved upon in the form of true digital delays. One of the first mass-produced digital delays was the Boss DD2, released in 1983. Digital delays are essentially like a short-term storage device. Your signal is stored in a storage buffer, sort of like short-term memory, then it's played back after your original signal with a time, repeat length, and effect level determined by the controls on the pedal. 
Due to this digital storage buffer, your signal is repeated with little to no degradation whatsoever, creating extremely clean and accurate reproductions of your signal for the length of the effect. Some people don't prefer these as much due to them sounding less warm than analog delays, but the longer delay times and clean repeats can be used extremely creatively. I don't have a DD2, but a very popular descendant is the Boss DD3T. It's a fully digital delay with controls for effect level, feedback time, and four modes, short, medium, long, and short loop. It's also got tap tempo and separate outputs for wet and dry rigs. What's not to love? While perusing the World Wide Web about delay, you may have heard this term being thrown around called self-oscillation. For those of you like me, who don't speak the ancient tongues of guitar forums, let's talk about what this means. Most delays have some sort of knob that controls the number of repeats. On some of these delays, the number and volume of repeats can set so high that the pedal begins to create delay signatures of its previously created delay. This essentially creates a never-ending loop, at least until you get annoyed and cut the power, or somebody else in the house threatens to sell your brand new Space Echo on Reverb. This can be a particularly cool effect in limited use, and it works particularly well with analog delays due to their degradation with each successive repeat that we've talked about before. Let's take a listen to a carbon copy going headfirst into self-oscillation like a budding playwright with her MacBook into a Starbucks. If you absolutely can't get enough of delay and you need to get your hands on one yourself, here's a few options for you. If you're looking for true blue analog tape delay, the T-Rex Replicator has its own tape cartridges and plenty of controls to get you all the sound you need. It'll run you around 750 bucks, according to Reverb. So if you're looking for a digitally simulated tape delay, you can save quite a bit by going with the Keeley Echoes for 249 bucks. It simulates flange delays a la tape style, and also includes a looper function. Pretty useful. If you want an oil can style delay, as we talked about before, the Catalan Bread Echo will run you about 210 bucks, but with controls for reverb, time, blend, balance, and an aptly named viscosity, you're getting something worthwhile that's got a really unique sounding delay. For bucket brigade device delays, the MXR Carbon Copy at 149 bucks is a classic option used by plenty of guitarists on pro-level boards. If that's not enough features and controls for you and you're a BBD freak, you can go with the Electro Harmonics Memory Man with Hazurai for 250 bucks. Funny enough, uh, talking about features, Hazurai roughly translates to junk in Yiddish, and it's used to mean the equivalent of saying the kitchen sink. But anyway, you're not here for a Yiddish lesson. The Hazurai has tap tempo, it's got presets, it's got controls for blend, decay, filter, repeats, delay, multiple echo and modulation options, as well as reverse echo and looping options. Ergo, it's a memory man with the kitchen sink. Creative, right? For digital lays, the tried and true classics are any of the Boss DD series, with the DD3T I used earlier going for 159 bucks. If you want a little bit more control, uh, a few more features, including dampening, note divisions, four algorithms for digital, analog, lo-fi, and slapback, 
You can go with a Walrus ARP 87 for 199 bucks. Plus, it's got a cool rocket logo on it. What can you hate about that? This week, we're going to be talking about somebody with one of the coolest guitars and the coolest tones in modern rock music. Of course, it's Josh Rand. To start, Josh Rand is a heavily modded guitar he's probably most known for. It's a neon pink Ibanez covered with black polka dots. The guitar is a super strat with an HSH pickup configuration, but from different interviews and photos, he seems to replace his pickups in the bridge and neck positions in most guitars with EMGs. Your first option for this is the Schecter C1 Platinum at $549. It's got Grover 18 to 1 ratio tuners, EMG 8185 pickups, mahogany body, maple set neck, but the neck is actually carved at the heel for more comfort and easier access to the higher frets for soloing, and this is what we'll be using for this tone. If you don't want to go with Schecter, and I don't know why you wouldn't, but that's okay, you're still accepted here, you can go with the Ibanez Steve Vai Signature Gem JRSP. It's $499, bucks. it has got HSH Infinity pickups, Ibanez's licensed Floyd Rose tremolo, Morani body, Maple Wizard 3 neck, which I know I've mentioned it before on the show, but the Wizard 3 neck is one of the best neck profiles out there. Absolutely love it. It's got a Jatoba fingerboard. It's a little more versatile than something loaded with EMGs, plus it's neon pink, so you're certainly getting close to the look. And we all know, the color makes the biggest difference with the tone. So if you want to play like someone who has a pink guitar, you need a pink guitar. Doesn't matter the pickups, doesn't matter anything like that, just get a pink guitar. So one of the things that I want to note here real quick about the JRSP is I don't know why they went with a licensed Floyd Rose tremolo. Ibanez used to make uh, Edge Series tremolos on a lot of their guitars that were really, really nice. I absolutely love them, and uh, they worked really well for that top-loading style, floating, double-locking tremolo. I don't know why they went with a licensed Floyd. Usually that kind of throws alarm bells in my head, but uh, from everything that I've read about them, that tremolo does seem to hold up well. It seems to be one of the better licensed Floyds. Your last option is the Ibanez Geo GRX70QA, very memorable model name. It's 199 bucks. It's a poplar body with a quilted maple veneer top, maple neck, HSH Infinity pickups, same as the Steve Vai signature that we mentioned, and a vintage six screw tremolo. You're not gonna be doing crazy dive bombs on it, but it'll get you the tone you're looking for. For Josh Rand's amp, he uses a Hughes and Kettner Triamp Mark II. This thing is expensive, but for a pretty good reason. The amp has three separate sets of power amp tubes that each lay claim to a pair of channels, essentially giving you three amps in one. Four out of the six total voicings are American voiced amps of varying gain levels, with the other two being a British style clean and crunch. I'm constantly tweaking sounds and trying to match tones, and I think this is a dream come true if you enjoy things like that. It's everything that I like about the Ignator Tweaker, but on steroids. However, the price still turns me off because the uh, current Mark III that's in production is going for just over 4400 bucks, and I am not ready for that, no matter how much glowing blue light Hughes and Kettner put in their amps. I don't know. Some people think that's gimmicky. I think it's pretty cool. I like it. Kind of like how, uh, if you guys have ever seen the Rev generator amps and even the Rev uh, D&G series amps, they have lights inside of their head, and if you hook them up to a Rev cabinet, the cab also lights up with the color of the channel that you're on. Super cool. You know, some people might think it's gimmicky, but I like it. I think it's uh, flashy. 
So for the specific song we're going to be going after today, which is Say You'll Haunt Me, we're going to be using the PRS-MT15 at $749. It's one of the only lunchbox amps that I've played that truly feels like a larger amp. It's American voiced, and it's really similar to a Mesa rectifier in my opinion. For these settings, we're going to set the bass to 10, the middle to 5, the treble to 6, and the gain to 8. And those tone stack settings are going to be the same on the clean channel, of course sans the gain because there isn't one on the clean channel. Another option for the amp would be the Bugera T50 Infinium for 500 bucks. It's got EL34 power tubes, which are traditionally seen as British. But with the amount of EQ range on tap, in addition to the fat switch and the tone controls, you'll be able to dial in a great American-voiced high-gain tone with this amp. It's two channels, so you'll be swapping between the clean and dirty channels for the verses and the chorus or the bridge. Your last option is the Line 6 Catalyst 60 for 300 bucks. It's one of the newer modeling amps on the block, and it's got truly great and convincing sounding DSP on it. I really don't think it suffers from some of the same setbacks that a lot of modeling amps do, uh, in terms of sounding artificially compressed or having some fizziness when there's uh, a high gain setting applied to it. So in this case, you'll want to use the clean model for the verses and the high gain model for the chorus, bridge, and solo. First up, we're going to demo the clean tone, something that you'd hear without any other effects on the intro or the verse, and then we're going to start layering the effects on to get it closer to what we're working with. Now, if you've ever heard that song, you know that sounds nothing like the intro. So the intro uses a single digital delay at the beginning. Josh uses a standard DD3, but here we're going to be using the same DD3T from before for, once again, 159 bucks. But you can use the TC Electronic, the profit delay, at 50 bucks, a little bit cheaper, and it's got a 1300 millisecond delay time. You cannot beat that at that price. You'll set your delay for a single repeat and adjust the time to end right after you finish playing a set of notes. Let's take a listen. After this, when we get to the point that those repeating notes are played in the verse, you'll switch to an analog delay, and you'll set it for a few degrading repeats with some modulation for some movement, but keep the mix knob well below 50% as we don't want it to overpower the original signal. Here we're using the Carbon Copy for $149, but another great Bucket Brigade device delay option is the Fender Hammer Tone delay, just $100. Let's take a listen to what our verse delay sounds like. For the chorus and bridge, we're just using the gain channel from the amp and we're taking the delay off. Let's give a listen to what it sounds like. When we get to the solo, we're going to be sticking with the dirty channel of the amp, and then Josh is using one of two things here to slightly boost the tone depending on the performance. 
It's either a Walrus Audio Ages or a stock TS9. The Ages goes for 200 bucks, and the TS9 goes for around 110 So in the interest of saving money, we're going to be using Boss's overdrive similar to the TS9, the SD1, at 63 bucks. We'll set the gain to about 1 or 2, the tone smack in the middle, and we can adjust the level to taste to get just a bit of boost going for some natural compression. Here's what it sounds like. Of course, I forgot to mention it, but you're kicking back on that analog delay with the same settings that we used during the verse for the solo. You can probably hear it in the track, but still felt the need to say it for transparency. Now that we've wrapped up our tone shaping here, let's take a look at the damage. Considering Josh's rig is a solid six grand by conservative estimates, we're not too shabby getting away with... 1670 bucks for this rig. That might be one of the largest total savings in terms of chone chasing on the show yet, you know, as long as you don't count John Mayer's Dumble, right? Considering this is a guitar podcast, I know we're going a little off topic talking about bass here, but I'll say I personally have a few bassist idols like Victor Wooten and Abraham Laboreal, plus a ton of rock and metal bass players that I really love, like Paul Gray as Slipknot, Aaron Stringer of The Amity Affliction, and Paolo Gregoletto of Trivium. One day, I'll get around to doing an episode where we are uh, all about that bass, no treble. <coughs> yeah, that was bad. <laughs> okay, I appreciate the laughs anyway. But for now, this recording tip is for all of you like me who want to play anything with strings on it and want to see if your effects are up to the task. This week, our recording tip is going to center on what pedals work with bass and what pedals, well, you should uh, just get the bass version. A lot of pedals are actually marketed towards bass players that may or may not truly have any difference from their guitar pedal counterparts, so don't be fooled that just because there's a bass version of something out there that you absolutely need that instead of your regular run-of-the-mill guitar effect. One example of this is the MXR bass compressor. Interestingly enough, this was actually the original iteration of the pedal, but later on, MXR released a version called the Studio Compressor that suspiciously had the same layout, same controls, and same features, just a different color and a different name. Upon opening each circuit up, the guitar world realized we'd been bamboozled and the two pedals were exactly the same. This brings me to my first category of effects that work well no matter if you've got four strings or six, compressors. See, compressors are usually just affecting your volume, so they don't care what frequency you're sitting at, just how loud you are. Compression is probably one of the most common effects used on bass, and it's extremely useful when you're playing slap, especially if you're heavy-handed like me. My low string slaps are a lot louder than my high string pops, and this helps even everything out. Here's a Walrus Deep Six handling my compression while I beat my five string like it owes me money. The only caveat to this that I want to make here really applies to everything on this list, but it's that some basses have an active preamp in them. If you're running this preamp really hot and you're pushing the input of your compressor that's been designed for the relatively low input of a guitar, you may experience some clipping, 
so it's best to play with a volume on your bass to ensure you don't clip your input. Another great example of pedals that you can use on either guitar or bass are your filter pedals, like wahs and envelope filters. Envelope filters in particular sound pretty funky and unique on bass. All these pedals are actually doing is increasing or decreasing the Q factor of a specific frequency spike, or the width. This creates a vocal-like wah effect that we know from artists like Tom Morello from Wage Against the Machine or Slash from Guns N' Roses. There are some specific bass wahs or bass envelope filters that target a different frequency range, so experimenting with the two different versions can yield some great results. In this case though, we're not interested in doing things the right way, so we're going to throw caution to the wind and we're going to run a bass through a Qtron. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it'll sound good. Maybe my house will burn down. Maybe Men in Black will come wipe my memory, in which case you'd better lock your doors after listening because they're probably coming for you too. But don't worry, we're going to do it anyway. I've said it once, and I'll say it again. Fuzz is probably my favorite effect in the world, and the good news is, it works awesome on bass. There is a version of the Big Muff specifically for bass, but from what i found, myself included, most people tend to not like it, even though it's got the clean blend option that makes us bassists salivate. One of the most popular Big Muffs for bass is the Green Russian. So let's take the Electroharmonics Russian Muff reissue and visit the mid to late 90s, a time where everyone thought computers would kill us all in a few years. So why not throw a guitar pedal on a bass? It's not like we're going to make it through Y2K anyway. Something about that sludgy, doomy tone of a big muff on bass, I absolutely love it. Haven't found a way to work it in my own music, probably should find a way to do that considering how much I like it, but I digress, it's really great. In case you were wondering, distortion can work on bass, but for me personally, a mild fuzz is what I go to first instead of a distortion, with the only exception being like a rat. That's a good distortion pedal that works on bass in my opinion. Something just works better with fuzz on bass than a regular distortion pedal, but once again, I mean that's all personal opinion. Experiment for yourself, don't take my word for it. Digital pedals can work great on bass too. Most guitar synth pedals can track a bass well, and some synth pedals, like the Boss SY series, even have a switch for bass or guitar mode. Digital octave pedals work well as well, like the MXR Poly Blue Octave. It's my favorite alternative to a POG. It can track my bass signal without any issues, and it can give you some super cool tones by harmonizing the octaves with your dry signal. Let's take a listen. Modulation here is, well, to use the scientific term, a crapshoot in this case. Some modulation pedals that I've played work out great on bass. Others, you definitely want a bass-specific version. What's interesting to me is that it's even pedals within the same type. One chorus may sound great on a bass, while the other may sound lackluster and, well, confused. I will say, though, I do think if you're looking for a vintage-style chorus for both your bass and guitar, the Electroharmonic Small Clone works great.
We've talked about some pedals that work great on bass, but I will say there's a few categories of effect that I think really just don't mesh well with bass, and that's overdrives and EQ. For most overdrive pedals, the tone control and the frequency band they accentuate just doesn't give you the control you need to get a good bass tone, and it ends up pushing the mids to an almost uncontrollable point. For example, here's a TS-808 used on bass. sounds like it's trying to be a fuzz, but just not working the same. Well, once again, that's my opinion, right? If you find a way to use overdrive on bass that works for you, don't just trust some random dude on the internet, right? Anybody can make a podcast. You've run into the same problem with EQ pedals, though. Um, many guitar-oriented EQ pedals have frequency bands that work great for guitar and spread across the majority of frequency bands your guitar occupies in the mix. But with bass, you simply don't have the control you need as the frequency bands really aren't meant for the instrument. Thankfully, there's quite a few bass EQ pedals out there, and some of the drive or preamp pedals even have onboard multiband EQ. So, the music community is a small world. Did you guys know that Drake's uncle invented modern slap bass? We all know the rapper Drake. You know, he's the man who's hopelessly in love with Kiki, the man whom God has a plan for. The man who accepts calls on his cell phone that can only mean one thing. But did you know that his uncle invented modern slap bass technique? That's right. A bassist by the name of Larry Graham, who just so happens to be Drake's uncle, had played in a band that lacked a drummer. Graham started slapping the lower strings of the bass and vigorously plucking the higher strings in a way that provided a rhythmic substitute for a drummer, rounding out the band's sound without a traditional drum kit in the mix. Graham was discovered by a radio DJ named Sly Stone, who invited him to join the band Sly and the Family Stone in 1968. The band quickly catapulted to success in the 60s and 70s, and Graham's unique playing was an undeniable part of this success. Other bands eventually caught on and started playing bass in a similar way, giving rise to the modern technique and widespread popularity of slap bass. It's been another awesome week hanging out with you guys. I was super excited to go over the tones, get a little bit into the bass world today. If you want to talk about gear, you can reach out over Facebook, Reddit, or soon-to-be Instagram, or you can email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com. You can suggest topics, ask for advice, ask questions, or just chat about gear. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. I've loved hanging out with you guys. I'm glad you've given me the time of day, and I can't wait to see you all next week. Take care.